Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 134 of the Life in Red podcast. And it's it's been a while. Happy to be back. Happy to be getting some more episodes uh, back to you. Uh, and this first one is all about the upcoming Ontario election. So if you're on in Ontario, you're really going to want to listen to this one um, as we go through sort of the process, the strategies of each party, each leader, um, what they're promising in their platforms, and sort of what what voting, what sort of our democracy looks like a little bit in this increasingly sort of polarized world, divided world, um, whatever sort of world that you, or whatever word rather, that you use to describe sort of the political climate of which we're in. So of course we talk about the leaders, Doug Ford, what the progressive conservatives are promising and what they're doing, what the strategy is. Stephen Del Duca and the liberals, the challenges they face, um, you know, being a progressive party against other progressive parties, coming back from a disastrous 2018 election um, and the fallout of the McGinty win government and how that impacted liberals and how he's coming back to overcome it. Um, the NDP, Anjo Horvath, is in her fourth election uh, as NDP leader. And as I record this, is in third in the polls. What does that mean? How are they making themselves known coming out of a time they were the official opposition? Um, and we do touch on sort of the Ontario party, the new blue party, uh, as well as the Greens um, and what they're offering to most specifically progressive voters. Um, we tried to encapsulate everything into this episode as we could, but obviously with any election, it's hard to do so, naming specifically everything in a platform. So what I'm going to encourage you to do in the show notes, I'm going to link to some articles and the platforms and the parties' uh, promises that they're making this election. So you can become best informed on which party you would like to vote for. Okay? My guest, um, absolute political star. I adore them. Uh, they have a great TikTok uh you need to check that out. I will link that in the show notes as well. Um, absolute genius when it comes to politics and strategy, uh, as they are a political strategist. So without further ado, please give it up for my Ontario election special with my fabulous guest, Anushka Kurian. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. One of my favorite TikTokers ever, uh, because she's so great. Anushka, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that I get to be on this podcast. That's so cool. <laughs> um, you know, uh, as people know, I've wor- I work in radio and I meet celebrities. And, you know, there's not often times I've been starstruck. But oh, shut up. <laughs> I'm a little starstruck here because you are. I, like, I'm, I'm sort of flattering you, but I'm also sort of like, it's actually true. Like, I, I appreciate your TikTok so much because it just gives me so much info about politics. Um, and every time I think I know a little bit about politics, I'm like, wow, I, I don't know enough. So that's why I'm so happy to welcome you. And, and I hear that. Me. I hear that. Thank you. That's that's super sweet. You're buttering me up right off the bat. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I honestly, like I work in the field and I have a degree in it. I have two degrees in it technically. And I even I feel like I'd never know enough about it. Right. Like, so 
we're all just we're all just here learning. So I really yeah, relate to that. Absolutely. Um, so we're here to talk about Ontario and our upcoming election here. Um, but before we get into all the parties and all the nonsense that's already happening, um, let's talk about you. Um, you know, a young woman um, who has risen so far as a wonderfully, you know, descriptive TikTok, like I said, how did you fall into politics? And I know you're a strategist. Like, explain what that is, because I think we hear that a lot, but what, like, what is a strategist for politics? For sure. I can, I can, I'm happy to break this down because I feel like so many people don't quite get it, but they get it enough that they're like, oh yeah, she's like political. Um, Okay. So how I got into politics is that I was always interested in public policy period. And I was always interested in community and and like in getting involved with frankly, human rights issues and issues that affected POC and women and Mm -hmm. LGBTQ folks, because I fall into all of those categories. And so that said, growing up, you kind of see the world through this specific lens of like, well, people like me are experiencing the world a little bit differently, you know, what are the systems that affect that? And I was very cognizant of that from a very young age because I wasn't born in Canada. I moved here when I was fairly young. So I have the privilege of always having grown up here. I very quickly lost whatever accent I had before. And I very quickly blended in, um, in, in like, you know, very white society. Um, but my parents <clears throat> were disenfranchised when they came here in a big way because they had to re-qualify uh, mm-hmm. in their professional degree. So they were qualified enough to come to Canada as immigrants, but not qualified enough to hold a job here and to be considered legitimate here without Canadian professional standards. And, and those standards can be like very onerous and set people back economically, just kind of the way a lot of them are structured, especially, you know, 20 some years ago when they first came here. So that said, I was always very cognizant of the fact that there was something in the system and a lot of POC and immigrant families feel this way. They're like, there's something in the system here that it was not set up by us. It was not set up for us. It welcomes us or pushes us away on a whim sometimes per government, per political movement. And we're the ones that are kind of, you know, caught in the crossfire of politics. Mm-hmm. So that's, and I, I'm, I think that I've heard other POC communities like express this as well. And, and you know, uh, the Indo-Canadian community is no different. So that said, when I was in high school, I was so big on like, giving back to the community and like community service, like non-political service is how you make change. And I was, you know, a classic bleeding heart liberal, a young feminist who wanted to tell the boys why they were wrong and, you know, be like, yeah, this, you make change in the world by like giving back and doing apolitical organizing because politics is messy. Then I get to university and I go, oh, you literally cannot do things without them being political. Like everything is political, whether or not we intend it. And I, and I welcome pushback if you think differently, but mm. I just have had this reaffirmed through everything. Like not a single person is untouched by politics. And of course, the more privileged you are, the, the more you can afford to ignore it. But everyone, are, we are all in this society that is intertwined with politics. You literally cannot extricate it. So that said, I was like, I think I want to get involved with like organizing. My friend brought me to Total Sluk, right? Because I was thinking about it and I was thinking about it for months prior, uh, getting involved in like campaign work or, you know, working or shadowing an MPP, working for or shadowing an MPP or whatever. But my friend just one day was like, you know what? You said you wanted to get involved in politics. I, there's this like, you know, thing happening. It's an event. Come with me, be my plus one. I go, I like, I network, I meet people. And then I get set up with, um, like this person who connects me with the person who connects me with the person and this is how it goes this is how it goes in a lot of communities but in politics included um where i ended up volunteering for an mpp 
And I ended up door knocking and supporting like that organizational stuff on the ground for a field operation in the campaign. And it was just absolutely exhilarating. I loved it. It was so like process oriented in a way that I hadn't expected. And I, I thought I was interested in it purely because I was interested in public policy that could make a difference in the lives of marginalized communities. Like what started this forever ago when I was younger. That's why I thought I was there. And suddenly I stuck around and stayed there because I was also fascinated by the process of creating somebody who becomes a change maker in those settings for those people. Does that, does that make sense? Does that check yeah, out? Yeah, it's interesting. Does that yeah. Okay, so that's, that's what I, I didn't expect to fall in love with the process. I thought I just loved the issues. And it's, it's a great thing when you like both because I, I, it's led me to the career that I'm, I'm in now. I don't know if I'll stay in this forever, but basically I went through my undergrad. I went through my master's. I, uh, my master's was in political science and my undergrad was in international relations and like a pre-law-ish kind of program at U of T. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always was interested in like international law work. I thought I wanted to go into, uh, go, wanted to go to law school. I, I almost applied, but then I didn't apply because I was like, I'm not confident enough in this to do this yet. And I still love Canadian politics. And there were these like two tensions happening in my life where I was like, do I want to go work internationally and like do that and be in that world? Or do I want to go to, you know, go to law school and be, uh, be in Canadian politics and focus domestically, like, where do I kind of belong? And I got some good advice from um, a, a big Canadian political figure mm-hmm. who I, and, and it was just a total fluke because we both went to the same college at UC. Like, I don't know if you know Bob Ray, like, yeah, if you remember course, Bob Ray. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people wouldn't, right? But um, so he, there was a, a fluke where, like, I ended up in a conversation with him. And he was, I was like, do I go to law school? <laughs> like a classic university student making somebody else's, you know, making my problems like a big political figures or someone else's. And I was like, should I go to law school? Like, do you regret going to law school? And he was like, I'm not going to tell you to go to law school because I don't want you to go to law school because Bob Ray told you to go to law school, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and then he was like, think about how you want to operate and move through the world. He was like, do you want to be an individual that moves through the world, the global system as an individual? And, you know, be an international lawyer, go work for the UN or go do any of those things and be that individual. You're a Canadian person moving through that global system and you can have that career and make the change that way. Or do you want to move through the world as Canada, as the state within the global system built for states? And do you want to make change that way? Like through that domestic power, you then end up hitting the international stage. And I think about this all the time. And what it did was it really brought me back to earth because it made me go, oh, like the fact that I love Canadian politics means that I love everything about politics. That doesn't mean that I can't like international relations. So this is really long-winded, but bear with me here because we're getting to how I got into consulting and being a strategist, right? I end up doing a master's in political science for uh, over COVID. And coming out of it, I get this job opportunity at this government relations and public affairs firm. And I never thought I wanted to work in government relations and public affairs. And it's a corporate job. And on a day-to-day basis, I'm doing like, you know, GR and PR work. And that's my nine to five. And then after hours, I'm organizing and helping run campaigns and doing all these great things with this amazing community that I've had for years, but that I'm able to balance really well now and, you know, take so much enrichment out of both these sides of my life. So that's how I got to this field. And it was sold to me like, oh, the, this corporate environment is like a campaign because it's consulting, but it's about government. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels like the energy is like a campaign team. So you'll like it. And I was like, okay. And so that's what it means. So when I say that I work in politics, 
I'm referring to both and either separately. Like I work Mm -hmm. in government relations, but I also work in campaign organizing and in campaign strategy. And so whether that's a nomination race or a provincial race or a federal race, I am helping with the back end of making a candidate into a candidate. But that's all not my job, right? <laughs> like my job, my job is to go to work nine to five and to to be a rep for my clients and to run PR and GR work. Like that's what right. I do. So there's two, but one. I get it. There's two, but one in a way, right? And so many, you know, I feel like we could do an entire episode about you and your experience and family and how this all sort of relates. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Bob Ray because he comes up in Ontario a lot when it comes to our elections. Before we get to that, I just have one quick thought because I find this so fascinating. And you kind of mentioned it going from, you know, being that young feminist and sort of, like you said, like really caring about these issues and then sort of finding out how the machine runs and then how you said we all relate to politics. And what I'm super curious is about is as a young person and especially seeing, you know, Gen Z on TikTok and, you know, people that we, we kind of have this, this, this look at the world and politics where we don't currently like the system that we really have in place, especially as young people. It's not working for us, but it's the system we have. And so you have people become disengaged and maybe they don't vote or they don't believe in the candidates. And then, you know, you, you sort of have all those issues there. And I just, I, I don't know if there's so much of a question or, or just asking for a general thought, but how do we start to bridge that gap a little bit between we care about a lot of issues And it doesn't seem like the government can or is really equipped at the current moment to deal with a lot of these issues. And so how do we keep people engaged with our political system while, you know, it seems that it's really not caring for the everyday person? I think that's, it's just, it's such an important question. And I have, I have a couple answers here that like, I'm, I'm, how do I, how do I approach this? Okay. So right off the bat on a on a, a bit more of like a vague level i will say a big part of it is like engagement is getting people to believe that they're doing this for a reason and getting people to believe that they're casting their vote for a reason and th- the reason is that this system exists whether or not you participate in it and it governs your life whether or not you participate in it so it, it, it is coming to you at very little cost that you just participate and and the fact of that participation, it's it's just so it's so within reach. You just need to know how to go do it, and you need to be encouraged to do it. If you get someone to vote early in life, then they're far more likely to vote consistently for the rest of their life. Like we are creatures of habit. So at that early level, especially like getting young people to just pay attention to like process and this is how I vote and why voting is important. That's very, very big. Like that's why I make TikToks in a big sense because I, I want, I always like, I'm, I'm always a broken record about like politics is for everyone. Politics is for everyone. But the reason I say that is because it was very young when I realized it was not, and it needs to be, but it, it's not yet. And we have to believe it is for everyone in order to make it for everyone. We have to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that, like, what that means, political literacy and learning about how our system works why your vote does actually make a difference and then how to go cast it. That's like the base level, right? Mm -hmm. 
in a more detailed sense, though, that has to be a feedback loop. Like, I completely recognize that, like, yeah, it's not all on the shoulders of, like, young people who need to vote. Like, they can go cast their vote, but like you're saying, they're not necessarily getting that back, that support back from government that they need. But it, it, it's like a chicken and an egg thing, because good government responds to active voter bases. Like, government's entire job and trajectories is is on the shoulders of how their voters are going to vote and if you only have Ford conservatives voting then you're only ever going to get a Ford government and you're only ever going to get that feedback loop, loop happening right mm-hmm. and you know who mm-hmm. that's serving so it's it's a I wish I had a perfect answer mm-hmm. and, but all I can think about when when this comes up is like hope is really really important and and believing that just taking that action of voting is going to do something but not right away over time, that's another thing. Like, so making people aware, getting people politically literate, like that's like just at the core of all of it, you know? <laughs> there is also an, another piece of, of like that, that time bit where I think Gen Z and millennials, we have inherited a really, really like messed up economy and a really, really messed up world. And there's a lot of resentment that's that's very fairly mm-hmm. placed, you know, on on people generations before us that could buy houses easier and who were just in completely different financial conditions. There was a, a you know a more narrow wealth gap, like all of these all these things that we're very very aware of as young people. But that resentment aside, change takes time to happen, and so literally, like we could have the voter participation rate. Oh, you're frozen. Hold on. It's okay. I can still hear you, but you're frozen. Yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Technology. Am I back now? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um. So, so you can have like the voter participation rate, which is like roughly thirty percent, thirty three percent, right? Or no, I lied. Actually, I that, I confused that. That's the margin of winning from from the last election, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. But there, you can take whatever the voter participation rate is, and you could increase it by like ten, twenty percent. And the government outcome would change a little, but maybe it wouldn't change a whole ton. But then, you know, all those people will vote again, and then we increase it more the next time around. And so, you know, over decades, over a generation, government really changes. Like the Liberal Party today in Ontario is so much more progressive mm-hmm. than it was, you know, however many years ago. The NDP used to oppose immigration at one point. Like there was like, it, like parties evolve. Like there, there's a big range, a big arc that all of them are going through. Doug Ford's conservatives. I do not mince words about my distaste for the Ford government and its policies because I am a young progressive. But I will say, in fairness, they spend like a liberal, like a liberal slash NDP government. Like they spend like a progressive government. They do. They are they they are called a progressive government um, by most other uh, conservative or like other provinces. So it's all, it's all that longer term game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. And um, I just, I'm glad we sort of touched on that because I think the most important thing is you, you can have distaste for the system, but if you don't participate, then the establishment continues on and yeah. nothing really happens. And so it's like, of course, in a perfect world solution, it would, it would do the right thing um, and sort of like go the way, especially progressive voters might want but um, you have to make the best of a bad situation, I guess, for for the most part. Um, Speaking of Doug Ford and Ontario, um, let's talk about Ontario. The story of the election for me, just speaking 
to people anecdotally and sort of intaking what I'm seeing on social media is especially over the last two years, there's been a lot of like disdain and anger towards the Ford government. Um, you know, especially over its pandemic response, um, you know, some of the things that don't get shown, like where the money's going, all that stuff. They lost $10 billion or something ridiculous. Um, but he's still leading in the polls. Um, and that's very interesting to me. And I think would be surprising to a lot of people who participate in social media. What I hear from people is, um, yeah, I hate Doug Ford, but I hate the other parties more. Um, I don't trust them. You know, you speak of Bob Ray and, you know, Ontario and Ray Days and the NDP government. Like, that's so long ago, but people who would live through that are still like, oh, NDP. Um, you look at McGinty, and I mean, I don't blame Wynne for a lot of it, but she's a part of the Liberal government that a lot of Ontario, like, voted to the third party. So I'm wondering from your perspective in this world, what is the story of this election? What it, like, you know, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, it's the devil we know, then um, the devil we don't know. That's what it seems to me. But like from your position, what is the story of this election and the parties? So the way that people feel about Doug Ford is so interesting to me because it is very much a combination of that like, historical and institutional distrust that you're talking about, but also combined with the fact that somehow they see him as a man of the people. Like he is a classic populist leader by Canadian standards. He is because he conveys himself as somehow a man of the people, anti-establishment while being part of the establishment. That is like the cookie cutter definition of that, right? So that was how he got elected in the first place last time around, especially when you situate that in the context of everyone being really mad at Kathleen Wynne about hydro. When it's like, Doug Ford mishandled the pandemic. I think that was a little, if not, like that was way worse than how Hydro went, if you ask me. But people do not hold that against him as much because they humanize him in a way that they would not necessarily humanize other leaders, especially a lesbian woman. And that is a fact, like the way that people treated Kathleen Wynne, the way media treated Kathleen Wynne, like I'm never going to be someone to cry rah-rah fake media, but it's true that there was like an intense movement against her on behalf of voters, on behalf of media, like there was like people were just like, you know, so, so, so there was so much vitriol towards Kathleen Wynne. And the story of this election is to me a story of if you are someone who is a cultural phenomenon, then you can get away with way more mistakes. Mm. And the other leaders, what they lack, the unfortunate thing is that their weakness plays right into Doug Ford's strength. They are forgettable. Horvath and Del Duca are both experienced politicians. Andrea Horvath is running for her fourth election. This is her fourth chance at becoming premier as a leader, which on a personal note, I'm like, that's a little bit too many. Like you should be giving someone else space because it, it's probably in the best interest of your party. Del Duca, on the other hand, is a former cabinet minister under Wynne and has done a great job of like building up a party that's completely different. Like this is a brand new slate of candidates. They've been really active about being progressive and diverse. And he's like, it's a brand new liberal party in so many ways. But he, despite all of his experience, despite all of that work, has struggled with being memorable and personable to the electorate just like Horvath. And, and part, of, part of the thing with Horvath is that it is like the sexism, misogyny is always a factor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A part of it is that people call her shrill. 
People say she's, you know, unlikable. She doesn't have a personality. People call Del Tuca a robot. And then on the other side of the, you know, aisle, you have Ford, who is this memorable, funny, um, whether it's a laugh with or a laugh at, it doesn't matter. He's, he's funny and he's memorable and he's, he's mm-hmm. a cultural phenomenon, especially in his voter base. He's Ford Nation. Yeah. Like it's, it's a movement. And, the, and movements are the most dangerous, if you ask me. They're, they're the most like incredible in a lot of ways, right? Some of the best things we've ever achieved uh, as society has been through big movements, like for rights and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But movements are powerful even when they're leveraged by the other side. Mm-hmm. And Ford has managed to create a very effective movement for, movement for himself in Ontario. You look at Obama and change, like hope, right? Um, even Trudeau in 2016 was very much about hope. Um, but then you're right. You look at the other side, you look at Trump and make America great again. You look at Fordation. Like, it's almost like we forget about the issues. We forget about the platforms. And we're just like following where the lemmings, right? We're just like following the leader, noise, you know, like what's going on. And yeah. we sort of like yeah. gravitate to like, like you said, more of like the person, the, the, the party leader, the the party, the than, yeah. than the actual things that are that matter to us. Um, and I'm curious, you like, I mean, it's no question we are, I don't know if we're so much as politically divided as we say in the media, as much as polarized, right? Like there's not a lot of centrists anymore. There's like, you're, you're really picking a side and like, that's, you're digging your heels in on no matter what. And even if you think the perspective might change or like, oh, well, I can't go against, you know, this thing, like there's not a lot of room yeah. for nuance and gray. And yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how does that all play into this election, especially when you consider that conservatives have the benefit of not splitting the vote? And then you sort of have progressives that have to split the vote between liberal and this is federally and provincially. Um, and then you get into the conversation about strategic voting and you have people that hate that. And then you have people again, well, that's the system we have. We got to play by the, we got to play the game. Where does this all fit into that narrative and story of the election because it's all so complicated and I think it just really confuses the average voter who doesn't pay attention to politics and is just sort of like chimes in about a week before like it's just it's just a lot to sort of consider when it comes to just casting a vote there it's it's true so parties form when voter bases form so from a, like a logistical perspective, every party gets together when they have a very specific demographic of the vote that they're going after in order to represent them the best. Obviously, everyone wants to represent everyone, but mm-hmm. you're going after your target voter base, right? So liberals are very, very popular in immigrant communities because they have done arguably the most for immigrant communities in the past like couple decades, especially federally and provincially, right? NDP, excuse me, mm-hmm. <laughs> my caramel latte went down the wrong tube. Um, so <laughs> so NDP, NDP uh, appeals a lot to, to workers. Like they've always been the party of workers. They've, you know, the, the unions and, and, and that blue collar like worker uh, voter base has been very like integral to that party forming and figuring out an identity over the longer term. The conservative blocks usually like traditionally attract more rich uh, corporations and individuals and donors. And it's like that more elite, historically, more that more elite, um, you know, support base from what I understand. But there seems to be a shift in politics, both in America and here um, in the past like decade or so, 
where conservatives are now appealing to low-income blue-collar workers and especially low-income white people. And there's been, you know, a concurrent flow of, of identity politics that's arisen and a focus on like intersectional activism that has emerged and has been really, really empowering, but has created a weird like shift in how we are putting together these voter bases. And when I say we, I mean literally we as a society, like how we are like how we are aligning ourselves with different communities and groups. So it's shifting. Doug Ford is and it's working. He's he's appealing to workers. He's making the PC party a party for workers, like for the workers. And this is working in Northern Ontario. It's working in, in rural Ontario. It's, it's working like everywhere you can find a white person who feels like the current narrative on equality excludes them because they are still low income or they are still filing their barriers or perhaps they are just plain out racist. And it's, and, cause some people are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, a, we're, we're in this period of the ground shifting. I'm really curious to see where this goes. Um, but I have no idea. So that's that's a part of like when you're talking about that divide, that's a part of it. Also, we're pretty predictable people. There's also an element of like, like humans in general are pretty predictable as electorates. We uh, in in um, liberal democracies, globally, there's a trend of like going outward to extremes and then coming inward to a center, then going outward and inward. And so like that that is like a pattern that other liberal democracies with similar systems to us have followed in the past like century. So we right now are in a period of divide. Theoretically, we go back kind of towards like a bit more of like a moderate approach, but will we? Because we've never had Twitter as a factor. Like we've never had social media as a factor, right? So we have previously been predictable, but suddenly with social media changing the way elections are run and the way democracy happens and the way we all understand and access information about politics, what is that going to do? I think it's totally thrown a wrench in the whole center out, Mm -hmm. center out pattern. I think it's just totally driven us to like yeah. And I think that's only going to, I think that's only going to increase. Yeah. Well, you see, especially in like America, I mean, America is the leader and then we sort of follow behind. It's always interesting to see how much of America will take in, but you even see now in the midterm elections um, and not, not quite, but they're, they're sort of doing the midterm primaries and you see like a lot of like far, far right con- um, people taking on kind of incumbent Republicans because they feel like now is a chance and it's making moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats um, sort of not viable because people are like, well, no, like I, you sort of like get more embedded in, in these sort of beliefs, whether it's left or right. And then so people yeah. who are just like sort of centrists, um, like that's like I, I Biden's a great example. People on the left start to think that he's actually a Republican. Um, and you could make an argument that some of his policy maybe is a bit more conservative or, or you see people on like far right looking at, you know, people like uh, Liz Cheney, who is like, oh no, she's a Democrat. She's left wing because she like, so you get that and you're seeing it a little bit in Canada right now. I mean, Bernier didn't take what maybe some of his voters and he thought he would, but the conservative race is a great example right now of how the party is splitting between the far right and sort of like the, the moderate right and how, like, what's the future of federal conservatives? And so, you know, federally is one thing, but eventually I think affects our life a lot more. And I don't think we're seeing it quite at that level in Ontario yet. You see it in Alberta. I mean, as we record this, Jason Kenney, 
um, just step down. You know, again, not really a question, but just sort of like some thoughts to that because I mean, no, I don't know. I, <laughs> I no, I hear you. I hear you. It's it's so true. Like, so it's 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 true that we 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 follow America, but not like there's there are quite a few institutional barriers that quite literally mean we cannot because we are a different system. We are a completely different mm-hmm. democratic system. So there is some institutional protection there from us completely going the way of the Americans. And that's for a different podcast perhaps. Uh, but in Ontario, you see you see a convergence almost of like the party's priorities. So the NDP, liberal and progressive conservative platforms are all obviously distinct. And obviously there's especially a distinction between the Doug Ford and then the progressives. But you have this further right section in Ontario that's feeling abandoned by Doug Ford and his conservatives. So they've created other fringe parties like the Ontario party and the new blue or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have these far right folks, you know, lacking, according to them, lacking this representation. And you know what? Not even just according to them. It's true. Doug Ford's progressive conservatives have emphasized the progressive in the past four years. They have, it's not progressive enough for progressive voters like you or me, um, mm-hmm. but not too presumptuous, but, um, and, and, you know, it, it is, it is too much for people who are on that more right fringe. So we have a split, but I think it's just, first of all, we have fewer people in Canada. So already off the bat, it's a bit more contained than America. Like as a country, we have few, a lower population than like the single state of California. Mm-hmm. But as an electorate, Canadians are also typically a bit more moderate. We are not as extreme culturally. We also don't have the same level of like, patriotic rah-rah pride as America, except now that might be shifting and we mm-hmm. might be growing it a bit better and more. But mm-hmm. I, I don't, I use better pejoratively, right? Um, it's it's because we all saw the Freedom Convoy. Yeah, We all saw the way that Canadian flags were used like they were American ones. And it made me so uncomfortable. I was like, mm-hmm. I hate this. But then you, you think about it and you go, oh, it's literally that like Americans were highly involved in like the organizing and funding of that. Like that was a very American exercise in joint work with Americans. So it's uncomfy to think of like these French movements that are emerging in Canada, but it's, it's, I think more a result of that far right feeling unrepresented because our government and our parties are moving more left. So in a weird circular way, it's kind of a good thing for progressives <laughs> because it's like, okay, even our conservatives put a ton of money into like, into programs, into funding. And, and we think about, so when we think about what makes something conservative or liberal or left or all of these things, these are just terms that we apply to like brackets of behavior. Yes. And yeah. those, and like I said earlier, like parties evolve and change and those literally those very brackets are shifting. And so like it's it's just interesting it's just interesting because the what we call conservative today is going to be so different than what like the generation after us calls conservative and people have a huge venom for Doug Ford and I'm not defending Doug Ford by any means but he is comparatively not a conservative Mm -hmm. so it's 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 compared to like actual conservatism and like what is conservatism conservatism like is is about like minimizing the role of government in your life that is the that is conservatism and what is and, and you know what liberalism has evolved so much and changed but like what does it mean to like be, to be on the opposite end of that it means that you want government to have a bigger role in your life but what does that mean that's so abstract yeah. and then you get into the details of like conservatives will say okay we're okay with government in your life but only in this way under these circumstances 
And then the, you know, that's when an Ontario Progressive Party or Ontario Progressive Conservative Party will come in and say, yeah, we like that, you know, like we we are we're, we want to get rid of license plate stickers because government shouldn't be involved or whatever the argument yeah. is there, right? They'll come in and I'll do a policy based on that value set that has like like played out a certain way for them. And then you have liberals and NDP that'll do that in their own way, and that's how you get variants. But they're coming from those core values. That's if, if, yeah. Which is one of the I know it's different in Canada, but one of the most interesting things is um, that conservatism and, and liberalism like aren't always associated to the party. Um, you know, if you look at Democrat traditionally, like they were the ones trying to keep slaves. They were the ones who, you know what I mean? Like it was the Republican that like abolished their slaves. And so how that, you're right, like the parties evolve and change and that's how they, they flipped. Uh, but when you look back at the history, it's so weird. And I keep talking about American politics, but I mean, it's not so different in Canada a lot of the time. Um, you're a strategist. So before we get into the party platforms and like we, we go through that a little bit more. What is, let's go through the strategy maybe of each party because we kind of touched on it um, a little bit in a previous question where, you know, Horvath, you know, is dealing with the misogyny, but is also not very memorable or charismatic. Um, I don't even think most people know who Del Duca is, if I'm being completely honest, like he has no brain. Not recognition. a part of it. Yeah. Not a part of it, but very much more now, but yeah. Yeah. Um, being called a robot, you know, um, and you also have him dealing with the history of liberals. And then you have the incumbent of Doug Ford, who we've sort of described in, in a lot more great detail. So what would be the strategy of each party? And I'm asking in the context of, I think a lot of people feel like attack politics is sort of like this new game, especially with social media. Like you're attacking the other party um, instead of like sort of like boosting yourself up. And what can we do? You're trying to tell everybody how you're back. So yeah. What, what you know? What's the strategy of each party, and how much of it is being based in that you know that attack factor, that fear factor, versus sort of like the hope factor, and like what we can do? Like what what sort of strategy is each party using now? No, good, great, great question. Um, so, Doug Ford. Let's start with let's start with Ford. So Ford's whole thing is that when you're the incumbent, you're on the defensive. The whole game, you're on the defensive. What you have to do is defend your record. You have to prove to the electorate that you delivered on the things that were important to them and that you need more time to keep doing that right. So all Doug Ford has to do is fight fires that otherwise tell the voters that he did wrong. Here's the thing about Doug Ford's, the popular opinion of Doug Ford. Six months ago, people were livid. Not six months ago. People were so pissed about how he handled COVID, about schools. And right now at the door, I hear like, yeah, you know, I'm a parent. I'm still mad. I hear mm -hmm. I'm a nurse. I'm still mad. Mm -hmm. But most other people are like, he did the best he could. Like in, in conservative rich areas, right? It's like, oh, you know, it's I wouldn't want to be the leader during a pandemic. It's like he signed up for the job. And, you know, it's it, it, all sins forgiven because it was a unprecedented time. Mm -hmm. it, that wasn't how the caught the cloth cut for Trudeau at the federal. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It's, and that brings me back to the Doug Ford quality mm -hmm. of being one of the people, people sympathizing, people liking him um, as a person and him having that personal appeal, right? So that's his strategy is he is going to try to say, look, we did so well for you through COVID. We got everyone vaccinated. They'll try to take credit for stuff that the federal government set up for them. So they'll take credit for things like vaccines, but they'll also take credit for childcare. 
Mm-hmm. So they'll say, we're going to deliver childcare for you. So they're, they're going to use that. Um, they're also going to say, we're going to invest and we need time to deliver on our investments like Highway 413. So that's a focus of Doug Ford. That's a big focus of what he's talking about because it is a divisive policy issue that his base is supportive of. So he talks about that investment that came up a lot of the debate. Um, and it, it's just on the defense. So right now, the reason it's working is is because he's targeting very specifically the areas that elected him last time mm-hmm. and maintaining a stronghold in those regions. So any day that the opposition parties are not proving that Doug Ford did not do his job to enough people is a day Doug Ford is winning the election. That is the incumbent advantage. The other parties, uh, Del Duca, you right, struggled with name recognition, especially at the outset of this. So he had the unfortunate uh, situation of becoming the liberal leader literally like a weekend or two before COVID happened, I'm pretty sure. So he was the brand new leader and we were in the first lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so right off the bat, it was kind of like, okay, this we're only going to get to know this guy virtually for a long time. And then he comes out and he changes his strategy altogether. He, you know, you saw him take away the glasses. You saw him, um, I don't know that he dresses differently necessarily, but like even just removing the glasses is like a different look. This stuff, it's, it sounds trivial, but it really matters. Like mm-hmm. the way that Hillary dressed changed when she ran for president. We see um, distinct ways of politicians dressing in order to create brands for themselves. It's important. So he changed how, I know, how he looked. He changed how he speak, how he spoke. Uh, so now when he speaks, you can tell he's been practicing at relaxing a little bit. Um, and if you were to compare, I'd be really curious to see this, but if you were to compare a speech that he gave like last week um, to a speech that he gave a year ago, I think it would be night and day because he has really been working on being personal. So how did that come out? At the debate last week, or last week, oh my God, I've lost a sense of time. Um, but at <laughs> Two the nights day, ago. <laughs> at, I know, literally, it feels like it was a week ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> so at the debate, Dalzuka, it was like, chomping at the mic like he was very much like trying he was feisty he was cutting Doug Ford off he was chiming in he was like that's incorrect absolutely not you failed Ontario you failed Ontarians like he was you know like he can't and he has a nerdy demeanor that if he if he channels it right could be appealing so that's what he's trying to do right um people afterwards said that he like you know was very prepared like people are very quick to call him robotic but after that debate it was a turning point for him I think in the election where people now know his name people already were you know increasing their recognition with his name but especially after the debate people know his name and they know that he was really prepared and you got to respect Ontarians respect the hard work in that way so we'll see how he how he rides the momentum because the next two weeks will be very in- in- integral to how he's going to keep that or lose that. So if he's making more personal speeches, showing his personality more, he's like leaned into this awkward dad thing. Like he's I don't know if you've seen the videos of like him and his daughters, but he's he brings up his daughters all the time and he like likes to make fun of himself as like a corny dad. And that's what he's going for. So you see, mm-hmm. you see how like strategically they're trying to create a person out of him. Because what's not in dispute is that he's a he's a good politician. What's not in dispute is that he's an effective policymaker because he was cabinet minister and he's a long career in politics and he won leadership. Like he his record is there. It's it's about that person. Andrea Horvath is in a very similar position in the sense that despite that she's run three times previously, people do not know enough about her. And over the course of the last four years of being opposition, she didn't necessarily build the brand recognition that I think she could have for herself. Mm-hmm. Like if I was her advisor, 
four years ago, I would have said you need to like create a brand for yourself as a person that is going to be memorable to Ontarians. But instead, what she fell into was being an opposition attack dog and just going out and criticizing Ford, which is a part of the job. It's part of what you're supposed to do, but it's not setting yourself up to be successful with your own brand when you are going to provide yourself as an alternative. So it's, it's unfortunate because I feel like there was so much time there and it was a bit of a wasted opportunity in that sense. So you see her trying in her own way to do exactly what Del Duca has to do. She, there was a, a, you know, on Twitter the other week, she, maybe it was yesterday, dude. I mean, I'm saying the other <laughs> week, maybe it was literally yesterday. I have no clue. Um, but she was, you know, grabbing a beer at a brewery and she's like, you know, drinking a beer at 11 a.m. or something and she's making a joke about it. Like she's showing personality in her tweets. You see that and it's, it's effective. She's clapping back at the OLP war room on Twitter, which is great. You see her showing her personality, and especially in today's political world, that personality is everything, and mm-hmm. even more especially up against Doug Ford, because as we talked about, his brand is the strongest thing about him. The fact that he's at the at the helm of a political cultural um, movement and and you know, brand in that way. Mm-hmm. Also interesting, um, and I think I'm also curious when you look at liberals and NDP specifically, right? So both on the outside, um, official opposition was NDP, but now liberals are leading in the polls. So if you're those two parties, those two leaders who are now not only fighting to get their name known, but they're also fighting each other while they also fight Doug Ford. So they sort of have a lot more like priority setting, like what, how would you go about, you know, setting those priorities? Because you have to separate yourself from the other party but you also have to make yourself viable to make sure that like Doug Ford doesn't win and like I think that's always the problem progressives have in this country with the vote um you you have to fight two enemies at once where one like conservatives only have to fight the one really so you're the way you're saying it is absolutely correct I was on a live with a with an organization a few days ago and I literally almost verbatim was like saying how Doug Ford has the privilege of only fighting a one front war where he is just fighting the progressive bloc but the progressives are fighting a two front war because they're fighting each other for the same voter base so progressives align in a lot of things um the NDP and the liberal platforms have very similar values and very similar language and um and 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 many very similar priorities right like things like affordability and workers rights and taxation you have like these these kind of core value elements that are very similar so how do they differentiate themselves it's all an approach it's all in how they're going to realize the values. So then you, it becomes a policy discussion, which is, I think it's interesting. I don't, I don't, you know, one way or the other, it's probably fair that it, that is how it ends up being, but it's not the best given these two leaders particular problem because policy discussions get nitty gritty and people don't always pay attention to them. So take minimum wage for an example, the NDP are proposing, so both progressive parties right off the bat are saying we need to raise the minimum wage. Doug Ford's government has said $15, it's not in dispute, we're not doing anything, great. Okay, progressives have said we need to raise the minimum wage. The NDP are saying we're gonna raise everyone's minimum wage to $20 an hour, okay? Still under living wage, but it's $20 an hour. Del Duca's party says we're gonna, reach, we're gonna raise the minimum wage, but we're going to do a regional minimum wage. And so we're gonna figure out how to create different regions based on cost of living so that one region has a bit of a higher and another has a bit of a lower, but it's adjusted to how much, how expensive it is to live in your region. That is a more center-left policy. Mm. 
the you know the former the Andrea's is is a more um, NDP policy. Fair enough. It's just approach. Mm-hmm. So as a voter, you look at that and you go, okay, well I think you know this makes more sense. I think that one makes more sense. I like that one more. I like that approach as a policy more. Except here's the catch. In an ideal world, we're all researching the policies and taking a look at it, but we're all living busy lives. So the average voter is not going to look and, and they're not going to look into an economist article on how credible regional minimum wage model is. They're not going to look at graphs or charts and figure out which policy is better. They're not. It, even though that's technically what the discussion should be about. It's like, hey, which approach do you agree with as a policy? Because we're not policymakers, we're voters. So it's kind of, it's a really imperfect system in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's democracy is a beautiful thing, but it's, 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 it's set up with so many internal contradictions in this way where both of those parties have had extensive research teams do a lot of work to develop platforms that are both costed, right? So both have a financial plan and that are both in line with their values and deliver policy solutions that they think are actually going to be attainable. If you publish something that isn't true in a platform, you're totally screwed. Like your opposition is going to drag you for it. You're going to lose so much credibility. So there are high stakes. So much thought has gone into these policies. But even still, people are not going to make their decision based on how different the approach is, despite that they maybe should. It's hard. Yeah. And I always like to sort of consider that, you know, not only are we busy, but like sort of like our political literacy is quite low. And like you, like you said, it's like most people... That's why I think Doug Ford is so successful in a way that he's, he's just someone I want to grab a beer with, you know? That's, that's what it. I want my politician. That's I just want to, you know, I think it'd be great to have a beer with. Uh, and most people sort of just vote that way. Like, I like that guy. I think he's cool. I like that guy. Or I like that woman. Like, whatever. It's mostly men. Yeah. But, Wealthy men, because I mean, yeah, like you don't want to grab a drink with a woman if you don't want to sleep with her if you're a guy. I mean, like, that's like a, you know, that's like, that's the misogynist like, yes. lens there, yes. right? Frankly. Anyway. Um, so let's go through the parties and what they're offering. Um, I mean, not the whole, we're not going to go through the whole platform, but sort of like the highlights, the most notable items. Um, and let's start with the conservatives and Ford. Um, what are, I know they released a budget, um, before they sort of, I can't remember what the word is, but they resolved their sort of the, the chamber or whatever it's called in Ontario, the legislator. Um, so So is that basically the same as that and what sort of things are are in their their platform that maybe could help people or that is most notable? For sure. So um, they introduced a budget as government and that budget just outlines the the intended spending. It wasn't passed. It was just introduced. So then then parliament dissolved and went into the election. And since then, Doug Ford has not put up a platform on his website. Like there's no like progressive conservative party there's no progressive conservative party platform document that you can download. You can download the liberal NDP green one. You cannot download Doug Ford's. You can link through, through, through a couple different landing pages. If you go through, you can link back to the Ontario budget. That was again, the Ontario budget introduced by Peter Beth and Falvey. Like it's not a platform. It's just the anticipated spending and the argument being, well, you can look at what the government's priorities are, what they would do. So it's the same thing. But there's something to be said for the practice of actually creating a digestible platform for your audience. But again, they don't have to prove anything. They just have to defend their record. So that's all they have to do strategically, right? Anyway, 
a big issue that he's emphasizing is Highway 413 because infrastructure is supposed to increase accessibility between communities. And it's like a infrastructure as well as a transit promise in a way. Um, Ford is saying that he's going to increase community safety by adding funding to the police. So that's a very interesting one as well. Um, there are a couple different pieces there. Like they're going to continue on with like, you know, with that, with the spending they've previously been doing across social programs, which is to say that they've like severely diminished social programs over the past couple of years. Um, there is so, and, and so there's just so many pieces there of that platform. Um, I'm even, I'm rocking my brain from like the debate to what Doug Ford was trying to highlight, but all he's, he's not proposing new policies per se in his key messaging from what I've seen. His key messaging when he stands up on a podium is we delivered for you. We helped you get through the pandemic. We supported small businesses because they had small business grants and they had funding opportunities for them, right? We helped vaccine distribution because they helped facilitate all that. We created the vaccine like passport. We did mandates and lockdowns that were good. And, you know, we helped businesses get through it and all this and that. That's what he's, he's trying to say. Uh, we're going to help ventilation in schools. That's what he's trying to say. So, but, but it's not that there's a new ideas. It's just him saying, we did it. So we'll keep doing it. If you like me, let's keep going. <laughs> let's keep going. So does that answer your question about Ford? Does that answer yes. kind of the conservative? It's, sort uh, yeah, of, I'm not the most, yeah. It's shady. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, for <laughs> me, I'm just kind of like, oh. The, we're coming We're coming at this from a very progressive, like, standpoint, right? Like, yes. There's so many people who in Northern Ontario are like, oh, yeah, like, Doug Ford was fine. Like, I didn't feel grievance. So why shouldn't he just keep going? I don't right. want someone to come in and throw it upside down it yeah, works double you know it works versus, yeah yeah double you know versus the double you don't basically um, that's exactly it so yeah. that's that's the whole time interesting um, um let's do liberal so Duca, you mentioned a couple of his minimum wage and stuff um we haven't yeah. even gotten to like affordability and inflation so are these parties also sort of like tackling that idea in, in their platforms so absolutely. So uh, Del Duca's affordability pieces are so the liberal approach this time around um, are are very much um, hybrid approaches to policies, which is interesting um, in the sense that think about Buckaride. Buckaride is a transit policy. It is saying let's make one dollar public transit across Ontario a thing. Okay. Uh, it's going to help affordability because obviously you can get a monthly pass for 40 bucks. That's going to change how many people can commute. Great. Um, people can commute to work. It makes their day-to-day -day living cheaper, but it also encourages people to do staycations in Ontario and travel across Ontario to smaller towns and create economic stimulus mm -hmm. elsewhere. So you're suddenly it also becomes an economic development policy because you're also helping, you know, rural and, and uh, places across Ontario make money and generate economic flow. Great. Okay, cool. Um, it's also an environmental policy because you're getting 400,000 or like, I don't want to get the number wrong, but like it's a couple hundred thousand cars are being taken off the road. So it's, it's like this, that's what I mean when I say hybrid. It's like this like integrated kind of like a thing going for it. Right. Um, there's also for affordability policies, if I'm remembering correctly, an HST, like removing HST on prepared foods, $20 and under. So that's a very digestible, easy to understand policy that'll reduce your day-to-day -day cost of living. 
there's a bunch of other stuff in there in affordability because all the parties have had to really, really focus on affordability. I think, um, you know, when we talk about the single biggest issue, maybe, I think that's what's on most people's mind. I can't afford gas. It is. Food is going wild and my wage has not been going up. It, and what was that, sorry? And, and like my wage hasn't gone up. So how am I supposed to afford to live in this province, in this country, in the world in general right now? But like, you, we talk about all these lovely policies and that's great. But I think for most voters, it's how do I afford to live and eat? That's the biggest thing on people's minds. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And that's why, and so then you get to like the minimum wage promise, right? Like, so on the liberal front, like we talked about, wage already knows, so I'll clear on, but it's that it's that regional minimum wage versus that $20 minimum wage. And so I wonder what people are going to pick because people who vote for a minimum wage, are they voting for it because they're thinking of themselves and they're like, I would like this wage or are they thinking about it from like, a, oh, economically, I understand that there are systems in place right now that might react badly if we jerk up like jack up minimum wage. like i don't know i'm not an economist right but mm-hmm. i'm I, what my question is not whether or not that's true it's more are people going to ask that question uh, like what are they going to think about when they're choosing a, a wage policy um there are also other affordability policies like things like lowering your overall cost of of living includes like lowering the things that you engage with everyday in society so the ndp have promised to reduce mental health costs so like provide a mental health program Right. And liberals have something on that, but I can't remember. Um, so they're, they've, the NDP have done like, a, oh, we'll give you mental health care. We'll give you, you know, OSAP loans converted to grants, something like that. Um, they have a couple other affordability policies like that that are focusing on reducing your day to day moving through the world. Um, and that, of course, you have housing, right? Which is interwoven in this. So increasing housing supply um that's pretty common you see that at the federal and at the provincial level like what gives me hope about this is that no matter which way people go both provincial and federal governments are going to be really focused on housing and all parties which means all parties and all yeah. parties and w- which also means that the municipal governments are also going to be focused on it and we also have a municipal race happening this year so generally right. progressives are pretty aligned with like okay we have to increase housing supply we have to figure out um you know there's a foreign buyers ban now federally implemented and so we have to, um, you know, we have to see like how that's going to affect the market. There are some people who are more on the left who are calling for like, um, oh, ban multiple homeowners, like get people to stop buying multiple investment properties. Then you also have like forces with the more conservative side of things that are like, don't do that. We have to keep houses at a certain value and this and that. And so either way, housing is going to be a focus at all levels of government, which gives me hope because I think that's how you get something to actually move quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of healthcare, I think that's another huge issue that's come from, um, from I mean, the last two years, whether it's pandemic response, um, nursing shortages, long-term care, um, like it just, it goes across the board about how broken it is in our system. Um, and I know we haven't got to NDP or Green yet, but just in terms of liberal and conservative, is there stuff that they're, they're planning on doing to try to, like, help with that um yeah there's so much there right because there's you talk about psws nursing doctor shortages rural areas versus urban area like there's just a lot there but what are sort of the parties at least conservatives and liberals talking about there 100 percent um so okay so for this one the the big debate is between i'll just give you the highlights the big debate is is between the for-profit not-for-profit long-term care stuff so doug ford is 
for-profit long-term care. He's actually privatized aspects of our of our provincial health system that the liberals have been calling him out for and being like, you have like sneakily pri- like privatized a good chunk of this system. We need to move it back to a public system and we need to um, add more funding for PSWs and for like hospitals and whatever, but also to repeal wage suppression legislation, which has been really contentious in politics in general in the last like six months because Doug Ford's government introduced Bill 124, which suppressed nurses' wages. It says you literally cannot like have your wages like increased during a pandemic. That's how they said thank you. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's why I'm, I was telling you earlier. I'm getting nurses at the door when I'm door knocking, saying, "Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. yeah, we're pissed, right? Of course." So the progressive parties and and um, I know the liberals have come out very hard on this one, being like you absolutely need to repeal this law. So they would do that. That's a big part of their healthcare policy, increasing um, the number of, of long-term care homes that are public and, and building more, as well as um, putting more seniors in long-term care homes and out of um, like just basically anti-for-profit long-term care. That's it. Um, and then you have the added funding to the healthcare system in general, right? Like conservatives when they come into government the general consensus is that they come into government and they cut the two biggest budgets and those are healthcare and education yeah so progressives tend to come in and fund them um and all depends on where you think money should be flown and and the progressive block would i think just add a bunch of money and funding into those systems recognizing that we need them how do the liberals propose you know spending that is it just an allocation of resources is there a new tax uh, is it like the quote unquote, you know, tax the rich, pay their fair share, which is a very progressive sentiment. Is there anything about that, like the liberal platform? And again, I know we're going to get to the NDP, so we can speak on that as well. Um, yeah. But just sort of like, so, is there a costing um, for that? Yeah. So there's there's costing for both the progressive platforms and you can find them online, but I don't know the costing off the okay. top of my head. Um, I'm actually, like, it's a very good point. I don't know if it's as, like, ideological as, like, a tax the rich, pay this. I think it's more about reallocating funding. So Doug Ford has put billions on the table to go towards Highway 413, and I think the liberal slash NDP approach is, like, well, if you just take the money that you're planning to spend on that and instead just put that into healthcare and education, then that's way better for society and for buck ride transit. That's way better for us in general because your highway is only going to reduce commute times by thirty seconds. So let's think about our priorities. Like that's it. So it's you know at the federal level, the federal liberals were like, we're going to tax the rich. Like their their luxury tax is literally moving through right now. That's going to tax insurance and banks. Um, So like that's very ideological at the federal level. But here it hasn't been a narrative of tax the rich as much from like either. It's been more like a well figure out your priorities you're not going to pay for a highway you're going to pay for transit or hospitals or this right. yeah so ndp um how do they differ from the liberals what are they promising what are they hoping to accomplish here i i struggle with this because their platforms from my opinion are quite similar but the ndp have more um and in some cases more ambitious promises so to take the reduction of auto insurance to to even start with right they're promising a reduction in auto insurance costs because ontario has some of the highest auto insurance rates in the country i'm from bc i i grew up in bc and and my are we have a public auto insurer and my rates were you know would have been lower there than here and not like i own a car but you know it's it's a completely different system um and so the liberals are proposing to like readjust the auto insurance regimes, like change like the the no fault regime with accidents and this and that. And it's like technical changes to that that would 
in their opinion, make rates a bit different, but the NDP are coming out hard with like, oh, we want to reduce rates by 40%. And so then the question for a voter is like, well, which do I believe will have, it's the same thing. It's like the, the how-to, because both of these parties are like, we got to lower auto insurance rates. Right. But the liberals are proposing, you know, I can't, I don't have the exact, I can't recall the exact detail of their policy, but it's like, it's not, it's not flat out, we're going to lower the rates by 40%. I don't know how the NDP would do that, but they're coming out hard with that promise, right? And so you can find that that costing in their platform, but they're, they have this tendency to be more like, we're doing this high bar and we're coming out hard on this high bar. And that's the, um, that's the, like, that's the, the nature of like the way their rhetoric is and their policy positioning is they're more ambitious towards the left as people kind of, you know, acknowledge. And then you have that liberals that are typically at more center left party that are like, oh, maybe we moderate expectations a little bit. And it's just a difference in approach. Because at the end of the day, both want to reduce auto insurance rates. So, so similar to healthcare and affordability, they they go with liberals uh, that like, yeah, we need to do something, but it's just a matter of those things that they different. that they're going to believe. Is there anything yeah. notable in those categories? Um, I don't know. Um, to rent uh, to gasoline, like you know, rent all control. the things. Rent okay. control. I know liberals have promised rent control. I don't know if the new Democrats have promised rent control. I would have to look that up. Do we not have rent have. control here? I think we do limited. Oh, we, we did, but then Ford took it away. Ooh. <laughs> and then before Kathleen mm. with Mike Harris took it away, like way back when, before the liberals reintroduced it, right? The conservative government prior. Yeah. Anyway. One of the biggest things with an NDP government is, again, in Ontario, you think of Bob Ray. Um, I know my parents talk about that all the time, my grandparents. Like, that is just entrenched in people's minds. And for those who don't know, Bob Ray, um, and explain it a little bit better if I, I mess anything up here, but basically made people work days for free so they could pay for stuff. Uh, public sector workers, nurses, mm. teachers had a select number of days that were basically working for free. Um, and that's just... Every time you see an NDP government, I think a lot of people are like, I really like that, but how are we going to pay for it? That's always what I hear. And like, truly, I don't know. Like, I, like, I, I even feel that way sometimes. I'm like, I love the ambitious promises, but are they actually obtainable? Like, do you think, I, I mean, it's great that you can say that, but do you think that like the things that they're promising are actually doable or is it just wishful thinking? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to bias someone one way or the other. I always bias people progressively, but I mean, you have to make a choice based on what yeah. your experience of the world is. Because I'm not an as much as I love this stuff. Like I'm not an economist. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I do my best as a voter myself to try to figure out which approach I agree with. And I, I, I I'm someone who like it's going to change. It's never as easy as saying, "Well, this party is always this way." I know conservative governments have spent far more irresponsibly before, plenty of times, mm-hmm. and bailed out corporations when they shouldn't have and that's not necessarily responsible spending either right um but then you have like every government can spend irresponsibly that's the thing it just becomes a question of like how how much do you trust how ambitious the promises are Mm -hmm. so people lose even trudeau federally they lose him because they're like oh it's too ambitious and we saw what happened when trudeau said i'm going to give you electoral reform (laughs) <laughs> it was like the most ambitious promise Canadians had heard in so long. And we were like, yes, amazing. And then he got into government and launched an inquiry commission. And then it said, 
yo, this is like literally impossible within our system. You'd have to completely overhaul the Westminster system. And he went, oh, fuck, I literally can't do that. And then, you know, there are obviously people say there are also political incentives there that would dis yeah. disincentive him from doing that. But like, he wouldn't have promised it if he didn't already think about those. So I think it was really more procedural. You know what I mean? So anyway, I know this is not about the federal, but it's, it's more me illustrating this point that like, ambitious promises have a tendency of biting us in, you know, yeah. and coming back to bite us in the ass. Like it's, it's hard, but you got to think that when people, when these progressive parties are making these ambitious pr promises, when Andrea Horvath says $20 minimum wage, when, when Del Duca says uh, Buckeye transit, it's, it's not nowhere. It's why it's now normal to have costed platforms. And it adds a huge amount of credibility when you can point to a line item and say, here's how we would spend for this, which is great. But it all comes down to faith. Bob Ray is a liberal, fun fact. Like yeah. Bob Ray's literally a liberal, I'm sure you know. And it's it's like he he was literally the federal liberal leader for a hot yeah. minute there, an interim yeah. leader, right? And he it was he's now a special envoy to the UN and he's like he's fully a liberal. And then so but it, this is an interesting shared water between the two progressives. It just speaks to what we've been saying this whole time. Progress this progressive block that's split it seems to be split in approach way more than it is in ideology. Right. So, um, yeah. I was just gonna say, uh, we haven't really talked about the Green Party, but I don't wanna leave them out. Um, but I couldn't even tell you the leader's name, unfortunately. I'm just very Mike uneducated. Schreiner. <laughs> Mike Schreiner. I'm just very uneducated with the, the Green Party, so, um, which is sort of, yeah. I think, their issue. Um, they're always kind of there, yeah. but they're not really there. So yeah. is there anything noteworthy with the Green Party that people should be made aware of? I, so what I can speak to in the Green Party is, first of all, the Green Party, if you're a progressive, the Green Party has even stronger rhetoric than the NDP. Like, they come out hard with their activism in their rhetoric. And I think it's, it's, it's language that appeals especially to Gen Z and the way Gen Z talk about politics. Um, so their website is very interesting. It's so clearly targeted towards like that young activist block, right? Cause it's like the rebel choice <laughs> in a lot of yeah. ways. Cause you, and it, okay. So let me talk about Mike Schreiner and, and the debate earlier this week. Um, Mike Schreiner at that debate, like he won that debate. He mm. won that debate because he was the leader that every progressive wished their party had at the helm of it. I think that night. Like, who, the, like, if we're talking, like, who actually won the debate electorally, it was Del Duca and Doug Ford. Like, they both walked away from that way better. Um, but if we're talking in performance, easily Mike Reiner. Because he was personal. He was passionate. He cared about what he was talking about. He was compelling. He, like, grilled Doug Ford in the way that Del Duca was really trying to. But he did it effortlessly. He was like, have you talked to a nurse recently, Doug, like Mr. Ford? Like, have you, have you seen how hard it's been on the ground for them in hospitals? Like, he was grilling him. And people heard him speak and they went, yeah, like they got fired up. If only he was the leader of the liberals. If yeah. only he was the leader of the NDP. Perhaps then progressives could unite around him a little bit. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is that he and the entire Ontario voter base know that the Greens are not going to form government and they know that they're not going to scoop all too many seats. And literally up on that stage, he was like, like he wasn't going for premier. He was not <laughs> fighting to be premier. He was like, we can win some seats. Like he literally said that at one point. Give us one, please. I remember I like I laughed out loud when he said that because it was I was like, he knows what he's going for. He's he's ambitious in his platform, but he's realistic in his strategy. You know what I mean? Like he wants to scoop, he wants to sit. He's the only green rep in uh, the provincial legislature. Hmm. He wants Diane Sachs to be up there with him. 
he wants her to win University of Rosedale. Like that's that like that performance was so that they could get two, maybe three seats. Yeah. Right? Like that's what that's what he's going for. He had nothing um, to lose. He got yeah, nothing to lose, right? And everything again. That was, you know what? That was the last week. That was the first time last week. I keep saying last week because it was last <laughs> week. Two days ago. Two what days is ago. Time? That is time. What that debate, Mike Shry, that was the Greens' first time included. And so Ooh. they had never been included before. And and them being on that stage itself was like unfortunately really good for Doug Ford because it's an even further split of the progressive vote and it takes up more airtime, right? Yeah. So it's a weird, like that weird that always happens, right? But in a in a different sense, for people who complain our electoral system squeezes you into strategic voting, a minor party, you know, minor party is getting a center stage and is growing. So yeah. I don't know what that means for the future of the Greens. I don't know what that means for the future of progressives, but it's it's good it's good for Mike Schreiner. In any case, yeah, <laughs> go on, Mike Schreiner. Um, yeah. And then lastly, uh, you mentioned it briefly. I don't even think they probably have a platform. They're just out there being against woke activism. Uh, the new Blue Party, I know, is sort of this is like this new emerging subsection of those far right voters. I, I I've only seen a little bit. I don't even see too many signs. I. I don't even think they're noteworthy, but maybe just a quick mention on if there's anything there. Um, so the new blue just, party is, or if they're just, sorry? The, the latest like white craze of angry people. So so the new blue party is alarming for sure, but I think what's even more alarming is the Ontario party. Okay. Because the Ontario party is the, like the anti-four of like, we hate Doug Ford, he's not conservative enough. You know, we're the right wing, anti-vax, anti-mandate people. And they hired Roger Stone the former senior Trump advisor oh, to be their campaign strategist. And that makes me think of two things. The first, is Roger Stone really that bored? And the <laughs> second, how did they afford him? How did they pay for him? Yeah, like, the backer. When, when you're Roger Stone, you're charging tens of thousands of dollars for like a single campaign. It is lucrative. And they can pay for him? I was like, you know, so that was alarming because mm-hmm. what we don't, and I, I would need to check who, how many donations that you can check. You can check who's donated to what party, by the way, online. Um, but I need to check who's donated to them because where that, where are they getting their money? Where is their support? Yeah. Why are they a thing? That's very, what alarms me. Very yeah. interesting point, and I think everyone should kind of look into that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want you to have to like predict everything that happens, but what do you think the next sort of week and a bit will look like? Um, in terms of ramping up to election day on June second, next week in a bit, ramping up to election day on June second. Okay, so this part of the campaign is the advanced polls push, is what we call. So we have two weeks, less than two weeks left, essentially, right? Um, and campaigns have one objective right now, and it's what we call GOTV: get out the vote. So GOTV is the most important part of any campaign. When you have campaigners coming and knocking on your door, they're not there to convince you or have a debate. They're there to figure out if you're their supporter. And if you are, their job is to get you to the polls. It's called IDing. So this is across all parties. This is across all parties. Like you walk into a campaign, you learn this the day one that you go knock on doors, is that you're there to ID voters and supporters. And often it involves a conversation at the door. Maybe you can flip a vote or two, but really it's about figuring out who you're gonna get to the polls. So 
in advance polls, obviously you can vote early and everyone advance polls open, you know, Thursday the 19th. So it's, it, you should be going and voting as of right now, if you are able, um, at one of your advance polls locations that you can find online with Elections Ontario, but campaigns are going to be calling you and hounding you and knocking on your door in order to get you to the polls from this point onward. And this is where the tactical part of a campaign is now the most important. Like before this, it was messaging, promises, personality, all of these things like that are more fluffy and that are like, here are our candidates, here is our leader introducing ourselves to you, the voters. Now it's get your ass to the polls. If you support us, go vote right now. And that's what we're going to see the next two weeks. So we're going to see parties talking about how you need to vote now. You're going to see language around, you, you know, you've already made up your mind, come vote for us. Because the, the convincing part right. of it, the, the we're going to persuade you as of this week is over. And now it's get your butt to the polls. So I guess for a last sort of, you know, you're very engaged. Um, you're doing this on your off time and, and, you know, doing the campaigning and everything. What's your last message to Ontario voters? What do you want them to know? What, I mean, you've sort of briefly touched on it, but just give a final word to you about, out to the Ontario voters um, and, you know, get them out to vote. I always speak to people on TikTok and when I do lives and this and that, like I always seem to speak from an educational standpoint. Like I, I, I come to inform and I come to analyze and I bring my, all my academic background to it when I do. But I think for this question, let me, let me speak as a person. Um, I understand that systems are awful and they can be really frustrating and slow and oppressive. But our system exists and you have the right to vote and get involved with it. And that is an immense honor and a fantastic right. So believe in the fact of your right. Believe in yourself as someone who can make change and have patience with it Mm. and go cast a ballot. Even if you don't feel 100%, even if you're not fully satisfied with a party, even if you feel like you're biting the bullet and doing something you feel like you have to, I'm not going to tell you to or not to strategic vote, but whatever your feelings towards the imperfection of this election, just go vote. Compromise, go vote and exercise your right because this is not the last election. Opportunities to make change will come again and they're always present. But a part of it is participating every four years when this opportunity comes around. And it will never be the last one because so long as we're actually using our right we will get to keep making change. So don't throw your right away. We fought really hard for it. And when I say we, I mean, I mean we, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mean all of us from marginalized communities that did not always have this right. That's like stand on the shoulders of all of us who came before us and use your right and use your voice. Yes, absolutely wise words. Um, and then final parting, the words of South Park. Um, sometimes you just have to pick between a giant douche and a turd sandwich. <laughs> That's none of our options. <laughs> um, everything I you said, everything I said in so many few words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're you're so right. And Anushka, thank you so much. Um, we almost did an hour and a half. Uh, so That's much crazy. of going right. over. Uh, but your by. your knowledge, your wisdom, your charisma. I, I, I hope one day you choose to vote because or choose to run because got my vote but that's uh, so nice (laughs) keep up the incredible work i love your passion i love your energy 
Um, and I just appreciate you. So where do people, I know you have a great TikTok, I already referenced it. Where do people find you? Um, I, I don't know if you have a website, uh, like to connect with people, Maybe please someday. plug, plug everything. I feel like I'm still very much an amateur at all this, to be quite honest. So, no, I don't have any personal branding yet of any kind. But you can find me on TikTok um, at Politicono, please, um, which is like you'll you'll add it, I'm sure, to when you. Yes, when you yes. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a I have actually a TikTok explaining that name. So watch that one. <laughs> and, yeah, you can find me on TikTok. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, and every now and then I pop onto radio and this and that. So maybe you'll hear me at some point. But uh, reach out over TikTok, comment, or uh, add me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much. This was, this was truly a pleasure for me. It was so fun. Thank you for chatting with me. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.